And there's the kingdom of this world. There's the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. There is the prince of peace and the prince of the power of the air. There is the God of heaven and there is the God of this world. These two kingdoms are always at odds with one another. And every person in the world is a part of one of these two kingdoms. Naturally, we are born and a part of the kingdom of darkness, following a course of the world that is laid out by the prince of the power of the air. When a person repents of their sins and believes in Jesus Christ, they are moved by God from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son, the kingdom of God. Now, while we are moved from one kingdom to another at salvation, both kingdoms still exist in our world. Both kingdoms still seek to exert influence in our world. Both kingdoms still seek to transform our world into the image of the king of their kingdom. The kingdom of God spreads through the gospel. And as the gospel is shared and believed, the kingdom of God breaks into a person's life. And from that moment on, the king of kings is at work in their lives, transforming them increasingly so they can become more like Jesus. The kingdom of darkness is also real and is also at work. The king of this world works through a variety of means to shape those who are part of his kingdom into an image he has for them. While the king of the kingdom of darkness knows that he has no right or no authority to shape the people who are part of the kingdom of God, he still works to shape us to an image he has for us. If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then scripturally speaking, you are a part of the kingdom of darkness. The king of that kingdom is shaping you to the image he has for you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a part of the kingdom of God. But Satan is still working to shape you into the person he wants you to be as well. A part of the unseen world is a battle for the hearts and the minds of the people. Satan knows that if he can control what people think, then he'll control what we embrace in our hearts. If he controls what we embrace in our hearts, he'll control the way that we live our lives. So his great desire is that our beliefs, our behavior, and our bearings would be built on something, anything other than God's will and God's want as revealed in Scripture. There is a battle raging for the hearts and the minds of every person in this room and every person we know and love and care for. So how does the world wage this war against us? How does the world seek to shape our behavior, our beliefs and our bearings? Open your Bible to Daniel chapter one and we'll see the answer to that this morning. Daniel one, verse one, page six hundred and sixty seven in the Pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. Word of the Lord says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles 
to the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men, in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave the name, gave names. To Daniel he named Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. To Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. The title of the message this morning is What the World Wants. Let's pray. Our Father, you are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and you are worthy of our devotion. Father, you have saved us with great power. You have sent your Son to pay the penalty that our sins deserved. You have poured your Holy Spirit out upon us when we believed. You have given us exceedingly great and precious promises that through them we might escape the corruption that's in the world. And Father, while we have received these promises and while we have been filled with your Spirit, the kingdom of this world is still here. And it's still at work. Father, it's still seeking to shape us to an image that the enemy has for us. It's still seeking, Father, to, to keep us from being like Jesus. To keep us from being who you want us to be and from doing what you want us to do. And Lord, in many cases, the way the enemy works is subtle. So much so that we don't recognize it until it's too late. Many times, Lord, it is so acceptable to be shaped into the, the world's mold that we, we don't see the harm in it. Father, we don't want to be like the world. We don't want our enemy to shape us into the people he wants us to be. We want you to shape us into the people that you want us to be. Father, we want to live as members of the kingdom of God. We want to live filled with your spirit. We want to live trusting in your word. We want to live confident and courageous. And allowing you to change us in any way and every way that you see fit until we are like Jesus. Father God, as we look at this message today. And Lord, let your Holy Spirit come and, and keep our flesh down. Our sinful nature is going to rebel against the truths that we learn today. It's going to push back and tell us to block our ears and not to listen. But God, you don't let that happen in our lives. Father, send your Holy Spirit to give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. Humble our pride that we could learn from your word and be challenged and convicted as need be. Bring us to the place 
where we would see our need for Jesus if we're not saved. Father, there is something that you want to do through this message in each and every one of our lives today, and we ask you to do it. We lift up our hands and surrender to you. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, and work in my life. Come, Holy Spirit, and speak the word to me. We want to bow down to you. And we want to surrender to you. And we want to respond to your word today in ways that testify that we have been born again. And that Jesus is indeed Lord of our lives. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech that I could speak your ways for your glory. Truly, God, your glory is all that matters. Your will is all that matters. Be glorified in how we hear. Be glorified in how we respond. And as we go throughout the rest of this day and the rest of this week, let us be different. Because of what you have done in our lives today. We ask all of this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. The book of Daniel picks up after King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had conquered Jerusalem. After he conquered Jerusalem... He sent word to take stuff and to take people into the land of Babylon. The stuff he would put into the treasure house of his God. But some of the people that he would take, they would be different. They would be brought sort of into the king's household. And they would be taught in the king's way. And the goal sort of ultimately that they would become Babylonians. Now, surely you can see how this kind of is a picture of what we've been talking about. There are two kingdoms. There is a king that conquered one kingdom and he took people out of it and he brought them into his kingdom and he brought them into his kingdom and he began to, to do things to them and for them with the purpose of shaping them into the person he wanted them to be. He wanted to shape their beliefs. He wanted to shape their behavior. He wanted to shape the bearings, the course of their lives. Everything the king was doing here, it wasn't out of the kindness of his heart to be a good person. It wasn't to give them a, a pickup in life. It was to take Israelites and to turn them into Babylonians. And what the king of Babylon wanted to do to these four young men, the kingdom of this world wants to do in us. The kingdom of this world wants to shape who we are and how we are. The kingdom of this world, it wants to shape our beliefs. So that we believe what the world wants us to believe. The kingdom of this world wants to shape our behavior so that we live and we act like the people of this world. The kingdom of this world wants to shape the, bear, shape the bearing so that it will control the direction of our lives, what we do and where we go. 
And so the world is arrayed against believers in an effort to shape that. And what I want you to know today is what the world wants. The world wants to shape my beliefs, my behavior, and my bearings. The world in which we live doesn't mind if you believe something so long as your belief is consistent with its beliefs. The world in which we live wants you to behave in a certain way so long as your behavior is in line with what the world says is acceptable and right and good. The world in which we live wants to shape the bearing of your life. They want to control the direction in which we go. I wish I had more time to to get into all of this this morning. But we say, how can the world... How can the world do all of this? How can the world shape me in this way? And the world shapes us in this way by exerting influence in our lives. In this passage, it teaches us three kinds of influence the world exerts in an effort to shape our belief, behavior, and bearings. But the world seeks to influence my thinking. When they were taken... Into the kingdom of Babylon. Verse 4, it says that they would be taught the language and the literature of Chaldeans. Verse 5, it says it would be three years worth of training that they might serve before the king. Everything that they were doing, they were going to be taught the wisdom, the literature, the language, the religion, the lifestyle, everything about the way the Babylonians lived, thought, believed, and acted. The point wasn't just to give them a broad overview of how people of the world thought. The point wasn't just to help them kind of understand where the Babylonians were coming from and why they might not like Israel. The point was to shape their thinking, to influence how they thought. At this point, they had been raised as Israelites. They had been trained to think in light of the Word of God, in light of the law of God. But the law of God was very contrary to the life of the Babylonians. So they they had to change the way they thought so that they could be good Babylonians. Because an Israelite who was an Israelite still could not serve before the king. You couldn't have someone who thought like the previous kingdom serving before the king. He had to be a Babylonian. So the world was seeking to influence their thinking. To train them. To think Like Babylonians, knowing that the key to getting them to live like Babylonians is to get them to think like Babylonians. Now, the world seeks to shape our thinking as well. And if I if I had time, I would spend a lot of time on this. But let me quickly say. Everything in our world. Every song, every TV show, every news article, every book, every poem, everything has a worldview. A way in which they view the world. A way in which they determine what's right and what's wrong. What's good and what's bad. What's acceptable and what's unacceptable. And all of this stuff, it wants us to agree with them. Every song, every show, every book, every news article, everything 
is trying to show us to think the way they think. There is no news agency. There is no article. There is no song that is neutral or fair and balanced or any other thing to make us believe that they're not trying to make us think like they do. Everything in this world is trying to influence the way we think so that we will think like the world. And as I thought about this, I thought about some specific ways that the world is is not only doing this, but but I would say is winning in some cases. All right. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to meddle for a few minutes. Politics. Woo! This is going to be fun. I don't know if you've noticed or not, we're in an election season this year. We're within a month. We're going to choose the next president of the United States of America. And if you've noticed that we're doing this, you've probably also noticed it's a little tense. Right? That, that, that discussions about it are what one of my pastors would call all heat and no light. Right? There's just yelling and screaming and insults thrown, but no, nothing helpful. The discussions are harsh and, and they're angry and they're brutal. The rude. The reason the world is so focused on politics is the world believes there's a problem with America. There's something about America that's not as it should be and it needs to be fixed. And the world believes the way to fix it is with two things. There are two problems and if we fix these two problems, everything else will fall into place. The world wants us to believe, and the world believes, that all of the problems with everything going on in America is a result of people and policies. If you get the right people in the right positions, and they implement the right policies at the right times, bada bing, bada boom, we make America great again. Everything is suddenly fixed, and everything is suddenly better. And the world... The world truly believes that because the world doesn't look beyond this world. The world doesn't see that there are bigger issues than people and policies. But we, we are people of the book. And we know two things. That behind every person and behind every policy, there are spiritual issues and there are heart issues. Right? And changing the people without changing the heart doesn't really fix anything. And that by changing the policies, not addressing the spiritual things behind it, doesn't really help anything. It doesn't fix it. Now, as believers, that's what the Bible teaches. That's what we should know. But what the world wants us to do is to adopt their mindset and to believe that people and policies are all that matter. But let me ask a few questions to see if that's really true. Let's, let's pretend next month. We put all the right people in all the right places, however you define that. And they do all the right policies and all the right times, however you define that. So all that, that the world imagines has come true. What difference will that ultimately make in our country? Right? Will, will there be peace instead of war? 
I mean, will, will one president institute the right policy so that there is no war in America, there's no war anywhere, that our soldiers are going to come home and will disarm the army, that there will be peace raging instead of war in the world? Will crime vanish? Right? Will, will the right person in the right place institute the right policies cause criminals to quit being criminals and stop doing crime? Will there be no more robberies and no more murders and no more rapes and no more thefts? Will racism and discrimination become a thing of the past? Can we legislate that stuff out of existence? Can the right person in the right place pass the right policy that will suddenly do away with racism and discrimination? Will the right person in the right place with the right policies cause poverty to disappear? Will the greedy suddenly become compassionate and give to the poor? Will those who don't want to work suddenly decide they, they want to work? Will poverty disappear if all the right people are in all the right places? Will the hearts of the parents be turned toward their children? If all of the right people are in all of the right places, passing all of the right policies, will that make abortion cease? Will that cause abandonment and neglect and abuse to, to stop? Will, will all the parents suddenly just put their kids first and love them as they should and treat them as they should and see the, the baby coming as the, the blessing that God intended it to be? Will it change that? Will marriages become models of faithful love? Will it lower the, the divorce rate in America? Cause us to choose our mates more wisely? Be more committed to the vows we make before God. Will the right person in the right place cause that? Will greed and pride be legislated out of existence? Will the right person in the right place just suddenly cause everybody to be generous and care about others? Be generous in the way the Bible describes. Will they suddenly stop being narcissistic and thinking we deserve more than better than everybody else in the world, that we're better than others? Human beings now be able to to master our own impulses in areas of sexuality and anger and narcissism. Will road rage cease? Will violence because of anger cease? Will, will the right person in the right place fix this problem inside man? And then ultimately, would you finally become the man or the woman that you know you ought to be? You know, ultimately, America is not going to be fixed from the top down. It has to be fixed from the bottom up. It has to be fixed in, in me, in you, and those around us. Is there, is there a person in a position, the right policies, that will make all of those things happen? Let me make it easier. Is there a person in a position with the right policies that will make one of those things happen? Can any president make any one of those things come to pass with policies, positions. No. No, they can't. And we know this. Because none of those are ultimately policy problems. They're spiritual problems. They're, they're heart problems. And heart problems aren't fixed from the outside in. They're fixed from the inside out. The gospel Changes hearts. Jesus changes lives. And so, our politician is not going to make it better. 
We, we've had times when there were Republican presidents and Republican congresses. Was there war? Was there crime? Was there racism and poverty? Were there abusive parents and marriages dissolved? Did greed and pride? Did all of those things exist in those times when in the Reagan era were all of those things there? Yeah. We've had times when there were Democratic presidents, Democratic congresses in the Clinton era. Were all of those things there? Yeah. This next president isn't going to solve the stuff that the ones before us haven't fixed. Now, let me say, I always want to say here, I'm not saying don't vote. You do what your conscience allows you to do in regards to voting. You vote for whoever you think will be best. Whatever your conscience allows. But don't think that your candidate, whoever he or she may be, is going to fix the problems of the country. Because that's not biblical thinking. That's worldly thinking. And if we think maybe, just maybe, this particular one will fix it, will make it better. It's not because America has finally elected the right person to the spot. It's because the world has influenced the way I think. And the world has influenced the way I think in such a way that I believe worldly solutions will solve spiritual problems. And they will always, always fail. So politics is one way the world seeks to influence our thing, but another is tolerance. The definition for tolerance that I found off dictionary.com is a fair, objective, permissive attitude towards those whose opinions, beliefs, practices, racial or ethnic origins, etc. differ from one's own. Freedom from bigotry. I think we would all agree that's a good thing. We have to have that, right? I mean, to live in a society, we have to be able to tolerate one another. How many of you are going to work tomorrow and you're going to be filled with people that believe just like you do about everything, have the exact same opinions you do, same beliefs you do, practices, they live exactly the same way that you do. They come from exactly the same racial or ethnic origins than you do. How many? None, right? I mean, we just don't live in a world where everybody's like us. So we're going to live, tomorrow you're going to go to a job where people are different from you. How are you going to be able to interact with those people and be able to not just destroy the place and yelling and fighting and breaking it down? You have to tolerate each other. You have to learn to be tolerant of those that are different. Now, take that, what you have to have in a business, and apply that to a world. There is no way that a country... Can, can unite and can focus and do what needs to be done if everyone has to be exactly alike. Because who are they going to be like? Me? You? You? Who's the standard for what everyone has to believe? Who's the standard for what every racial or ethnic origin has to be? Who's the standard that everyone has to meet? Well, that's a problem. So what we have to do is live in a world... This great big melting pot of cultures and relationships and ideas and beliefs and opinions and say, I believe what I believe. You believe what you believe. I'm good. It's tolerance. And tolerance is a good thing. But what the world wants us to believe about tolerance, it's what apologist Josh McDowell calls the, the new tolerance. And the new tolerance isn't just a 
a permissive attitude, a, a, an objective, a freedom from bigotry. It's not only saying you believe what you want to believe, but it tells us that, that all opinions are equally valid. That all beliefs are equally valid. That all lifestyles are equally valid. That in order to be a tolerant person, it's not enough that I, I, I don't bother you as you live the way you live or you believe what you believe. I have to affirm it. I have to say, yes, what you believe is right. Yes, what you believe is as valid as mine. Yes, the life you live, the decisions you make, those are great. If it makes you happy, go for it. That's the new tolerance. Now, that's a problem for people of the book. The reason it's a problem for people of the book is, well, Jesus is the only way. See, tolerance... The way the world wants us to believe it says that, that we have to accept that all paths lead to God. Right? We, we have to believe that it's okay. No matter what someone believes, that all belief systems are equally valid. Everyone will make it to heaven. The Bible doesn't do that. And, and Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, except through me. And there's some other passages to look at. 1 John 5, 10 through 12, 2 John 9. And those are other passages that all say the same thing. That everything rises and falls on Jesus. Right? That, that those in 2 John 9, those who depart from the doctrine of Christ, they don't have the Father either. Right? That, that everything, Jesus is the only way. He's not a way. He's the way. The only way. And so the tolerance of the world that says all paths are equal, that, that's going to pose a problem for people of the book. But not only that, there are certain actions and lifestyles that are inherently sinful. There are certain things the Bible says are always wrong. We won't spend a lot of time here, but... Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortionists will inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5.19-21 through 21 says something similar. So does Revelation 21. I think the Revelation one is especially important. Revelation 21 is all about New Jerusalem coming down in heaven. And then right in the middle of this heaven coming down and it being all glorious is a list of people who will not be in heaven. Interesting. But the Bible, it tells us there are certain lifestyles that, that are wrong and they can't be made righteous. That, those things there, there, there is no righteous way to fornicate. That there is no righteous way... To be an idolater. There is no righteous way to be a thief or a, a drunkard or, or to be covetous. There, there is no righteous way to do any of those things. Those things are always wrong. No matter what I believe or how I feel, how much I like it, how happy it makes me. There is no situation under heaven by which those lifestyles can ever be right. And those who live in those lifestyles have no part in the kingdom of God. And that's just what the Bible says. The Bible is a book of absolutes. 
and in its absolutes. At times it says there are certain beliefs that are absolutely right. There are certain activities that are absolutely wrong. And while we can find any number of people who would tell us that Jesus didn't mean what he said and that he's just a path and maybe even the best path, but not the only path. These people haven't found a new received some new revelation from God that we should listen to. They haven't got a special connection to God where he has told them a secret that has been hidden from the ages. Instead, their thinking has just been influenced by the world and the world is shaping their belief system. There are any of those sins you you can find somebody with all kinds of letters after their name that will tell you why any of that stuff's right. And that stuff's okay so long as you feel it, you were born that way, it makes you happy, whatever. None of those people have found a new special revelation from God. It's been hidden since the New Testament was written. What they found is that they've let the world influence the way they think and it shaped their belief system. The world absolutely wants to shape your beliefs, your behavior, and your lifestyle. And in order to do that, the world will do everything it can to influence how you think. Because the more you and I think like the world, the more we believe like the world. And the more we believe like the world, the more we'll live like the world. Once our thoughts go the way of the world, eventually everything else will follow. How's the world influenced your thinking? How has the world shaped the way you think about issues that the Bible speaks clearly about? Make no mistake, everything, everything is trying to shape your thinking. Everything you see, everything you hear. If it's biblical, it's trying to shape your thinking biblically. If it's worldly, it's trying to shape your thinking worldly. Be aware. Secondly, the world seeks to influence my lifestyle. The world seeks to influence my lifestyle. It says that the king appointed a daily provision for them from his own rations, his wine, his drinks, his food. And this was going to be a part of the three years that they were there, that they would be fed from the king's table. Now, just in the natural, that doesn't sound all that bad. I mean, I think being fed from the king's table is probably a pretty good feast, don't you think? Here was a problem. The Jewish law had, man, some really strict dietary guidelines. There were certain foods you, you could never eat. They were unclean. God had declared and you were not allowed to eat them ever. There was a way that the food had to be killed. Food couldn't be strangled. It couldn't die on its own. It had to be, throat had to be cut. It had to be bled out. All of these things had to be done. There's no way the king's feast was like that. Pagan cultures... They didn't eat the same sort of things that Jews did. They ate what the Jews considered to be unclean. What God had taught them was unclean. The pagan cultures didn't necessarily kill their food in the way that God had prescribed it to be killed because they didn't follow God. They didn't care about what God had said. 
And probably a, a biggest thing is that pagan cultures, especially the king, would often sacrifice their food to their gods. And their meat that was killed as an offering to their God was eaten often as an act of worship. So the food that they were giving them, it wasn't just sustenance. It wasn't just them saying, we're going to feed you to keep you healthy and strong. It was a way to influence their lifestyle. I know your God doesn't like you to eat this food, but look at how we've prepared it. I know you're not supposed to eat animals that have been offered to another God because it's an act of worship, but look how good this is. Feed on it. It'll be okay. When in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do. Everybody else is doing it. This is all that there is. Do you know how weird you're going to look, Daniel, trying to eat vegetables instead of meat? It wasn't just feeding them. It was shaping them. Shaping the life that they lived. Because once they started believing and thinking like a Babylonian, it would just be natural for them to to eat like a Babylonian. Once you're eating like a Babylonian, you're worshiping their God through eating this stuff. You, I mean, you're just a step away from being a full-on Babylonian. The world in which we live, it certainly wants to influence the life that we live. The world absolutely wants us to, to live a certain way. Now, the actions of the world aren't that the world wants us to take aren't as... Let's see, how do I say this? It's not so much the world wants us to take certain actions. It's the world wants us to be motivated by certain things and the actions that we take. Uh, and here's what the Bible says about that. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but is of the world. So the world isn't as concerned about what we do as, as why we do it. Lust of the flesh. Now, lust of the flesh we often think of in relation to sexual things, and certainly that's a part of it, but that's not all of it. Lust of the flesh is basically a desire, a physical desire, fulfilled in an unrighteous way. I mean, do you realize that there are very few physical desires that are inherently wrong? The desire for sex is God-given, but God has prescribed a certain way to fulfill that desire. The desire for food is God-given, but there is a certain way to fulfill that desire. The desire for pleasure is God-given, but there are certain ways that we should fulfill those desires. And you can take any physical desire you have, and there is a, a righteous way to fulfill it. But the world doesn't want us to focus on the righteous way to do it. The world just says, you want this, you, you desire it, you get to do it. You don't have to wait till marriage. You, you don't have to do it in this way. You just go for it because you want it. And that's right. Now, you can take that with any action, any physical desire. The lust of the flesh is a desire to fulfill a legitimate desire of the body in an un righteous way. So the world doesn't care what unrighteous way we fulfill it. The world just wants us to do it in the wrong way. The world just wants us to say, I deserve it. And so I'm going to do it. It feels good. It makes me happy. 
I'm going to do it. The lust of the eyes is we see it and we have to have it. It becomes a consuming desire to have it. And with this, it can be anything. Again, just because we want something, that doesn't make it bad. Right? And it can be anything we see. A person, right? The Ten Commandments warn us against coveting against our neighbor's wives. So it can be a house, it can be a car, it can be a job, it can be status, it can be money, it can be anything. And by and large, none of those things are bad. But the, the, the lust of the eyes says that becomes now my priority. Nothing matters but being popular. Nothing matters but having this boyfriend or this girlfriend. Nothing matters but getting this promotion. Nothing matters but attaining this much wealth. Nothing matters but accomplishing this that I want. It becomes the driving desire of your life. People who live by the lust of the eyes, they neglect their families for their jobs. They neglect their relationship with Jesus for the stuff that they want. But they see it and they want it and it drives their life. And the world is pretty pleased when that's what drives our lives. And the pride of life is basically anything that makes me think I'm better than someone else. And again, this is a huge thing because the pride of life isn't one thing in particular. I can think I'm better than you because of my skin color. I can think I'm better than you because of what political party I'm registered with. I can think I'm better than you because of my education, because of my job, because of who I'm married to. Because of my level of physical fitness. I can think I'm better than you because of, of anything you can pick. You can pick anything in this world. And we can elevate it to make it me think I'm better than you. And the moment I think I'm better than you, I don't love you. I don't care about you. I'm not concerned about your eternal destiny or anything in your life. The biggest thing I want is for you to know that I'm better than you. I want you to acknowledge that I'm better than you. So I'll take my digs and I'll make my statements and I'll say my things on Facebook all to show I'm better than you. And as I do this, the world rejoices because I'm living and acting just as it wants me to live and act. The world absolutely wants us to be led by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And every time we let those things define us and we let those things drive us. It's not because we have gotten to a place where suddenly they're okay. It's because we are, we have thought like the world. And now we're living like the world. Now the thing about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is. Probably we all know what we're pulled by in that area, don't we? I mean, I think it would probably be safe to say that we all have at least one in each category that, that pulls at us. And if there's not one in each category, there's one particular category that pulls at us. So we, we know this struggle. And it's a struggle we constantly have to fight. And, and we have to be intentional about fighting it. Because if we don't, we will surrender to it. Like this, fighting against the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of the that's not the natural course of a person's life. Naturally, that's the way we live. That's the way the world lives. And if we do not intentionally fight against it, that will be the way we live, believer in Jesus Christ, reader of the Bible, or not. And what makes it hard is the world tells us it's okay 
influencing you to live for Jesus. They're influencing you to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We have to be careful. And then finally, the world seeks to influence my devotion. In verse 7, it tells us that the boys were given new names. Let me read this because I can't remember. In Jewish culture, names were significant. And these boys, their names were no different. The word, the name Daniel, it means God is my judge. His name was changed to Belshazzar, which likely means the keeper of the hidden treasures of Bel, the name of the chief god of the Babylonians. Hananiah means the grace of the Lord. and His name was changed to Shadrach, which probably means the inspiration of the sun, which the Chaldeans worshipped. Mishael means he that is strong in the Lord. His name was changed to Meshach, which means of the goddess Shak. Azariah means the Lord is a help. His name was changed to Abednego, which means the servant of the shining fire. This was to do more than to give them snazzy, cool names that we'd remember when we talked about the three boys tossed in the fire. Hebrew names were meant to remind them of their devotion to God. When Daniel thought about his name, he knew his parents raised him to follow, to know, to love and to serve God. To take away that name and to give a name that represents a pagan God It was to do something. It was to influence his devotion. To minimize his devotion to the God of Israel. And maximize his devotion to the God of the Babylonians. And in each of those cases, that was the purpose of the name change. It wasn't just so they would fit in. Although fitting in to be like the world was certainly a part of it. But one could not be a good Babylonian and worship the one true God at the same time. Babylonian culture was was just filled with their idolatry and their their worship of their gods. In order to be a good Babylonian who could serve their king, one had to be a Babylonian not just in speech, not just in intelligence and lifestyle, but also in one's religious conduct. The world was seeking to influence their devotion. And once their devotion was influenced to the gods of Babylon... That would change the entire course and the direction of their lives. Their lives would never be the same once they begin to live for the God of the Babylonians. The world in which we live wants to shape our devotion to Jesus as well. The world wants us to have a devotion to To anything but Jesus. The world doesn't need us to worship Baal. Or to worship the gods of the Babylonians. The world will be content if we will worship the God of pleasure. If we will worship the God of money. If we will worship the God of politics. If we will worship the God of anything except for the God of heaven. The world will be okay. And the world doesn't even necessarily need us to fully abandon the worship of God. Because see the world knows God doesn't accept second place. God doesn't accept our leftovers. So when the world gets us to put politics first, to put 
pleasure first, to put money first, to put promotion first, to put popularity first. And we seek that more than we seek God. Then we just kind of give God what's left. The world rejoices because that's not a devotion God accepts. Read Malachi 1. It's not a part of our sermon, so I won't go there. But read Malachi 1 about what God says about offering him the blind and the lame and the leftovers of the flock. Not happy, not pleased, even remotely. All the world needs us to do is not give Jesus the kind of devotion Jesus deserves and demands. We can nominally claim Jesus. The world's fine with that. As long as we're not truly devoted to Jesus. What does true devotion to Jesus look like? Well, it's total devotion to Jesus. Total devotion to Jesus. We are meant to surrender and to live every part of our lives to Jesus. If we have a, I will do anything for Jesus, but we are not totally devoted to Jesus. I will do anything for Jesus, but we are not totally devoted to Jesus. I will put Jesus first, except for we are not totally devoted to Jesus. Jesus, in fact, told us this. Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Read Luke 15 sometime, uh, 25 through the end of the chapter. Take some time and read that. Jesus says there can't be a but. Right? If we are totally devoted to Jesus as he expects us to be, he can say, drop this and do that. And we will say, yes, Lord, no matter what that is. We are willing to do anything that he wants us to do. We're willing to be anything he wants us to be. We are willing to let him have absolute control of everything in our lives. If he says, go here, we go there. If he says, drop that, we drop that. If he says, pick that up, we pick it up. If there is if there is if there's a but or a no or accept. We are not totally devoted to Jesus. And if there is a but or a no or an accept. The world has influenced our devotion to Jesus and the world is winning. Continual devotion to Jesus. Growing up, my idea of serving Jesus was coming to church. Our family went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night and Wednesday night without fail. And so to me, that was the sum total of what it meant to serve Jesus. That's far from the reality of what Scripture teaches. This today, this is not the sum total of your devotion to Jesus. For sure, it's a part of it. But Jesus expects far more than for us to come to church on Sundays, to sing a few songs, to listen to a sermon, to give a little bit of money and then to go home. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross Daily. And follow me. So you're going to leave here today. And some are going to go eat at a restaurant. And the way you treat that waitress is a part of your continual devotion to Jesus. The way you treat that waitress if the service is good is a part of your continual devotion to Jesus. And a part of the way you treat the Waitress, if the service is bad, is a part of your continual devotion to Jesus. Because a continual devotion that is total 
It affects not just our morality, but our attitudes, our actions, our our values, our priorities, everything. Tomorrow you're going to go to work. And the way you work for your employer is a part of your continual devotion to Jesus. The way you interact with your co-workers is a part of your continual devotion to Jesus. The way you react to those who get on your nerves is a part of your continual devotion to Jesus. You see, this, this affects everything. There is, there is no part of our lives that is not impacted by total devotion to Jesus. And yet daily we have to deny ourselves and daily we have to take up our cross and daily we have to follow him. And that is, that is the choice that we all must make. I must do this every moment of every day of my life. I am given opportunity after opportunity to demonstrate my total continual devotion to Jesus. And that's the way it's meant to be lived out. And if I if I am not continually devoted to Jesus, it is because the world has shaped my devotion to Jesus and the world is winning a willing devotion to Jesus. Jesus will not tackle you and force you to follow him. I have uh, who here is the younger youngest sibling in your family? Raise your hand. How many of you were horribly abused by the older, older siblings? Right? Perhaps, perhaps you know this. My brother was an awful, wicked human being when we were kids. That he would hold me down and want me to say uncle. And I'm a lot of things. Prideful and stubborn are two of them. So I wouldn't say uncle. And he could twist my arm until I felt like it was going to shake and I wouldn't do it. But he had a secret weapon. Spit. He would hold me down and he would put his knees on my shoulders and he would drop spit out of his mouth and then pull it back up. The most horrible thing you could ever do to someone. I believe that's what waterboarding is. It can't be much worse than that. And then and only then would I say uncle. And we think about devotion to Jesus. He's not going to hold us down, twist our arms, threaten to spit in our face. He's not going to make us come and follow him. Instead, what he's going to do is offer us a choice. Here is my way. Here is what I want you to do. Now decide. Right? Psalm says this. God will instruct us and teach us in the way that we should go. He will guide you with his eyes. Now, I love this. Guide you with his eyes. The idea is that we are so close to the Lord. We are so close to him in a relationship that he can just look. Okay, we'll go that way. Go that way. Stop. And that's what he wants. He wants us to just be so close to him that he can say, do this. And we know that his way is best. And we know that he loves us. And we know that he always has our best at heart. And so we will do it. What he doesn't want is for us to be like a horse or a mule, which has no understanding, but has to be harnessed with a bit and a bridle. Else they will not come near. God could absolutely make every one of us do anything that he wanted to do. I mean, he made... Put Jonah in a big fish. He could, he could force us to deny ourselves and to follow him. But he wants us to love him more than that. He wants us to trust him more than that. He wants us to see that his way is best. That a God who would come to earth, die on the cross for my sins and rise again, surely is not going to just seek to hurt me or to harm me or have anything but my best interest at heart. And so, yes, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do. That's the kind of devotion we're supposed to have. 
And if we don't have a willing devotion, if if our reasoning for not doing something is, well, if God really wants me to do it, he'll you know burn down my house or he'll break my leg or he'll get my attention in some bad way. If that's if that's what it takes for us to do God's will. It's because the world has shaped our devotion to Jesus. Anything but a total, continual, willing devotion to Jesus is a worldly, influenced devotion. Now, it's hard to have that kind of devotion constantly. To continually be that surrendered and follow Him that closely. So we have to put forth effort. Because naturally, we won't go in those directions. Naturally, we won't do that. Naturally, we go the other way. But we recognize Jesus, His way is best. And so we, we make a point to give Him every area of our life surrendered to Him. We make a point to every day choose. Maybe the world would say, I had a right to act in this way, but I'm going to choose not to. I'm going to choose to be devoted to Jesus instead. And it is willing. I am willingly going to do what Jesus wants me to do. And anything else... It's because the world has shaped our devotion. When we believe that anything else is acceptable, it's because the world has shaped our devotion. The world has influenced our devotion. Man, if the world has influenced our thinking and our lifestyle and our devotion, at that point the world has shaped us into its mold. At that point the world has shaped our belief system. We believe what the world wants us to believe. At that point, the world has shaped our behavior. We are doing exactly what the world wants us to do. And the world has shaped our bearings. We are going in the direction the world absolutely wants us to go in. It's a constant battle. Because everything out there is trying to push us in a different direction. Let me, in closing, show you one more verse. This is from the message paraphrase. And it's Romans 12 too, which you're familiar. Don't be conformed to the world. But I just want you to look at the first sentence of the message, because I think the message paraphrase is perfect right there. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. And that, that is being shaped to the image of the culture right there. The world shaping your behavior, your beliefs, your bearings. Have you ever thought about all that the Bible says believers are supposed to do, how we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to talk and think and act and react and prioritize and selfless and generous and without grumbling, turning the other cheek, careful not to grieve the spirit, truthful in all things? I mean, man, that's a lot. But the world, the culture, the culture is not like that, not really. And it's easy for us to become well adjusted to the culture. That we fit in. We, we, we don't really stand out in any noticeable way. Except maybe we come to church on Sunday. But other than coming to church on Sunday, we, we speak like the world. We think like the world. We act like the world. We react like the world. We have become so well adjusted that we fit in and we don't even think about the fact that we're more like the world than we are like Jesus. And what the Bible says we're supposed to be. Something we have to think about. How has the world influenced your thinking? How has the world influenced your lifestyle? How has the world influenced your devotion? 
Have you been shaped by Jesus to be like Jesus? Or has the world shaped your behavior, your beliefs, and your bearings in life? I believe we can tell. I don't believe we have to wonder. Chances are right now we can all think of areas if we're out of sync with Scripture and out of sync with God. And here's the temptation. It's not that big of a deal. Everybody does it. It's just not realistic to live like that. It's just the way I'm wired. I can't help it. Understand, all of those excuses, all of those excuses are worldly thinking. All of those excuses are worldly behaviors. All of those excuses are are worldly beliefs. There is nothing that Jesus tells us to do that we cannot do through Him. There is no belief we cannot hold. There is no behavior we cannot act out or resist acting out. There is no bearing of life that we cannot fulfill. The power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus has put within us. See, it's not a matter of we can't or what everybody else thinks. It's a matter of I have let the world shape who I am and I have let the world shape how I am. And I'm comfortable being like the world. The great decision for all of us. Am I comfortable being like the world or do I really want to be like Jesus? The reality is I can't be both. Let's all stand.